it was the end of the last world war. So we're talking about a long, long time ago, May 1945, the beginning of May 1945. And my parents were a courting couple. It always seems odd to think your mum and dad had been like that, but they, they were. Um, they'd actually met during the war. There was no, of course, um, websites or access to ways of meeting people. Um, you just met people either at the dancing or somebody in your own local community or whatever. My mum and dad, my mum lived in Rutherglen, and she was, always thought she was a wee bit kind of posher. And my dad lived in Halfway, which is just on the other side, and he definitely wasn't. Um, his own father had been injured during the First World War, and they really had had a, quite a struggle. Um, and I remember my own grand telling me of the struggles they had. And so they certainly were on the kind of poor side of the track. Um, but during the war, so I believe, Hayes and Dad, I was not there <laughs> to tell you this. During the war, the tennis courts in Rutherglen, the Overton Park, which is still there, they were closed. I don't know if they were used for something, I don't know. And in order to play tennis, and this is a laugh, because the only person really knew my mum was my wife, obviously, Elizabeth. You could not imagine my mum playing tennis. <laughs> She must have been desperate. But she and her pal had gone to the tennis courts in Canvas Lang. I actually still have the rackets that they had in the garage. They're antiques now, obviously. And on the tennis courts of the public park in Canvas Lang, obviously there was a connection between my dad in one court, presumably, and my mum another. I do remember him saying he, she wasn't really very good at the tennis. Um, but it did the trick. Their eyes met, and that was the start of a romance. And at the end of the war, on VE night, Victory Europe night, they, along with many other people, went up to Cathkin Brace. You can see I've never travelled very far from this area. They went up to Cathkin Brace to watch Glasgow being illuminated after the blackout was ended, obviously, during the war, especially the early part of the war, Glasgow, like all the cities, and indeed the whole of the country, was in blackout. Many of us will know Clyde Bank was badly bombed during the war. Large parts of it were destroyed. Indeed, over in Rutherglen, and even here in Uddingston, stray bombs landed. I believe one landed behind the manse. We've got a window in the manse, and there's, there's two different types of glass. There's the original glass, which was put into the manse way back in the 1880s. You can see that because it's got wee bubbles in it because we just didn't have the right technology to make the glass perfect. And there's another pane, which is clear, and that's because that was blown out. One of the panes was blown out when a stray bomb landed in a field somewhere near the manse, and I believe killed a cow. So, and another bomb landed in what was my school, eventually, Rutherglen Academy, Stonelaw High School it became, and blew up one of the bits there. And so, war was real. And of course, people had gone to serve in the war. My dad was in a reserved occupation. He was always very keen to tell people that. Wondered why he wasn't in conflict. He worked in the office at Hallside Steelworks. It was a different time. When you left school at 15 and you went for a job in, in the steelworks, you were asked simply what school you went to. If you went to West Coates, which is on Brownside Road, you were obviously a Protestant, and you got into the office. If you went to St. Something Others, you were obviously a Roman Catholic, and you had to stay in the shop floor. Um, so my dad was in the office in Hallside, and that's where he'd worked during the war. 
They went up to see Glasgow. Glasgow was a pretty grimy and dirty place, not just in the 1940s. Some of you have been watching a program about Bible John in the 1960s. Even then, it was a pretty grimy place. And so, what was it going to look like? Well, what they had done was they had taken the searchlights that had been stationed around the city, which had been used to try and, you know, distract enemy planes overhead, and they were directed onto a few of the public buildings in Glasgow, the, the, the city chambers and, and the cathedral and one or two others. And you can imagine six years of war, people there who had lost family and friends who died in conflict or who were still fighting out in East, out in Pacific against the Japanese. People who had gone through times of real trauma and stress, really, compared to COVID. <laughs> really, I think, you know, it wasn't a different leak. And the sun, because it was May, so the nights were a bit longer, the sun began to set. And indeed, if you had ever got up to Catherine Bridge, it's, it's, it's beautiful. You can see it setting over the, the hills of, of, of Ben Lomond and all the rest. But the sun began to set. The twilight came. The darkness fell. And then suddenly, these searchlights were switched on. Again, can you imagine the six years of darkness at night? and everything that that stood for. And then suddenly, the searchlights were switched on. Not as a sign of enemy planes coming overhead to rain destruction upon people, but a sign of victory, of celebration, of hope, of new beginning. And I remember my mom and dad saying, the thing that stood out most clearly was Glasgow Cathedral, with its roof, its green copper domed roof, standing out as a brilliant light in the midst of the darkness. I've used that illustration before, but actually, for me anyway, that's a very powerful illustration of what we're thinking about this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. Light as a sign of hope and of victory and as a beacon of hope and victory in the darkness. And so, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah chapter 9. And we're actually going to look at 8 and 9, just generally look at that. This is a well-known part of the Christmas story, of the Advent story. Usually, if there's a service of nine lessons and carols or something like that, then this will be part of what's read, at least some of those verses in chapter 9. As we see, some of the verses are missed out because obviously don't, they don't, don't seem to fit in very well for the Christmas story. But nonetheless, this is one of the main things. And because of that, it'd be very easy for us to hear these verses and almost like water over duck's back just again. But that's why, in the same way, and I know it's hard for us, but the same way, try to imagine what it must have been like for my parents and other people to see that and the suddenness and the brightness and the difference and the hope that that all spoke to a young couple and many people up there in Catherine Bray's all those years ago and try to let these verses come and like a shaft of light pierce, well, let's be honest, things are a bit gloomy again, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, here we go again. And in the midst of all of that, shine God's hope into it. Let's hear, I'll read chapter 9, although I'm going to make references to chapter 8. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, and we'll speak about that in a minute, that phrase, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we are perhaps this morning, for understandable reasons, feeling a wee bit gloomy or at least a wee bit disheartened because of what we hear about new versions of the virus and, and whatever else, then we do have to get things into perspective. If you'd lived at the time of the prophet Isaiah, you really would have had reasons for concern. You know perhaps enough of the story to understand at least a bit of the setting. Back in chapter 6, we're told in the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's the prophet, saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The context is the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had brought in a period of unparalleled stability within the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had divided. The northern kingdom, still called Israel, based in Samaria, was a godless kingdom. The southern kingdom was far from perfect, far from perfect, but under King Uzziah it had known a spiritual renewal. There had been a time of revival and also a time of peace and stability, a time of security. But with his death, not just Isaiah, but others reckoned that that era was ending. I'm sure we will feel that in many ways when Her Majesty the Queen finally passes on to her eternal rest. I've heard this morning that she's been told by the doctors that she's to stay in. Good advice for a 95, 96-year-old. That she's to stay in and look after herself so that she can get to February and mark her platinum and jubilee, 70 years on the throne. And I'm sure with her passing, not that I'm wishing that, but I'm sure with her passing there'll be a very real sense of an end of an era. Well, King Uzziah's death marked that. The future was uncertain. There was plenty of questions about how Judah or Judea would continue as a kingdom because not all the kings of Judah had been godly by any means. And beyond all of that, the northern kingdom of Israel was under pressure. Assyria was the rising power. My friends, there's always an enemy. 
there's always a power, there's always something that we, we're frightened of and that we have to stand against. That is human history. That's the result ultimately of the fall of the passage we read from Revelation and the bowls of wrath being poured out. It's all interconnected. And Assyria was the threat to the northern kingdom. Indeed, it was to destroy the northern kingdom not long after Uzziah died. And so there was a military threat. And of course, once the northern kingdom went, little Judah would be left on its own and would then become very vulnerable. There were economic and social problems. The prophets of that era warned against that. The inequalities within society, those who took more than their needful and dined and wined and prospered, and those who were left with little or nothing. Does that not sound a bit like Britain in the 2020s? Excess and nothing. All of that and so much more was going on. And in the midst of all of that, there was, of course, a spiritual crisis. If you want to turn to chapter 8. And pick up in verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. The context of Isaiah 9 and the light dawning is gloomy. There is spiritual death and darkness. People are consulting the dead. That may mean, actually, they even tried to consult King Uzziah, who had died, and sort of somehow bring him back from the dead to give wisdom. They were locked in the past, those halcyon days of the way things were. And instead of turning to God, they opened themselves up to all sorts of weird and wonderful spiritual practices. Does that not sound like Britain in the 2020s? And even those who supposedly brought God's Word, prophets, not all of them were kosher. Prophet Isaiah is very clear. Consult God's instruction, the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Yes, there were those who would get up and say, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. No way is God going to forsake us. We'll be okay, blah, blah, blah. Words of peace, peace where there was no peace. Rather than bringing the word of the prophet Isaiah, the word, if you want, later on, if you read later on, you can, you can find for yourself the word that in Isaiah 6, God himself says you will bring God's word, but nobody will listen to you. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of those people callous. Make their hearts dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And when Isaiah says, how long have we got to give this message that nobody's going to listen to? The answer is, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left destroyed and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent ever and far away and the land is utterly forsaken. A gloomy message indeed of judgment. 
And I would suggest that if we're true to God and His Word and the testimony of warning today, we too as Christians and as the church have to bring a word of warning and a word of judgment to bear upon our land and particularly upon the Western world. And so that's the context of what the prophet goes on to speak. And did the poor fellow, I mean, I really do feel, I mean, to be a prophet wasn't really a job you would rush to sign up for, even if it was the best high paid and, you know, the job center, whatever. And back in chapter 8, he's told that he's to have a child. And so we're told in the beginning of chapter 8, take a large scroll, he says, and write on it with an ordinary pen, and maher shalel hash baz. Tell you fancy I'm to christen a boy or a girl with a name like that. So I called on Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Zedekiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess. I'm not actually very sure whether the two men were to stand there and watch, make sure the man did the deed or not. I'm not sure of that. But they were to be witnesses of what was to take place. And when they gave birth to the child, he was to be named Mahar Shahal Hashbaz. And if you look at the bottom of most of the Bibles, the name actually means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And if you want to read on, I'm not going to do that, but you want to read on in that first part of chapter 8, well, it's not a very cheery message. And there's a word of warning in verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. Is that not a word for Britain in the 2020s? And why is that? We were told in verse 13 of chapter 8, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And earlier on, when we're told about all that's going to happen, the end of verse 8, we're told, Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, in the midst of much that was cause for concern, in the midst of a broken society, in the midst of a turbulent world, in the midst of spiritual apostasy, and yes, in the midst of a word of judgment from the Lord, God was in the midst and working his purposes out even in a world where you could look, not saying we do, but we could look and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and the fact that many seem to be thrust into utter darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We're going to pause there and we're going to sing together. A hymn, a carol, it's not a carol, it's a hymn, it's one of the Scottish paraphrases, picking up from the Old Testament again the promise of the Messiah. Hark the glad sound, the Saviour comes. And we'll stand to sing. So in some ways, there was the bad news. And that is important. The good news only makes sense if we actually understand the bad news. That's why there's a false preaching 
which emphasizes maybe even the good news, but doesn't emphasize the challenge or the cost or the context of that. I want to commend my dear brother Graham for making that clear last Sunday as he exalted Jesus, but called and reminded people of the cost and the challenge of following him. And our dear brother Ian, who does that as well. There's the two sides to the coin, or else it's a vacuous thing that actually means nothing and actually is pretty irrelevant to the real world or the real life. But the good news is this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. And again, and this is obviously something we can't do when normally you just read out our service and nine lessons and carols. Again, the context is important. Look at verse 1. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom. Nevertheless, despite all of that, despite what seems to be set as if, well, that's the way it is. Nevertheless, you see, God, the God that we worship, the God that we come before this morning, is a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. He can do that which would appear to be impossible. He can take somebody who's spiritually dead and make them alive. He, in the ministry and life of Jesus, took what seemed to be a disaster of the cross and made it into a glory of resurrection and victory over sin and death. God, the God who can always say, well, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. And interesting, and again, we're reading this, we don't always pick this up. No more gloom. Where does he start off with? He says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. Now, actually, here he's speaking about the northern territories of Israel, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the Sumerian kingdom. The very first place where God's judgment was going to fall was the very first place where the ministry of the light of life was going to appear. God taking the disaster of his judgments upon his people. In the midst of that, making the light shine. Matthew in particular in his gospel makes that abundantly clear. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 4 and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, where did he go to? He withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And actually, quote, Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness has see, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus begins his ministry where God's judgment had been seen. We see that, of course, on the cross, where God's judgment falls upon his perfect son as atonement for our sins. And from that, hope and light and salvation flows. That paradox, that two sides of the coin. And so that's a word of encouragement. We see that often in global history in the life of the church. There is an area where there appears to be terrible disasters, terrible calamities, terrible manifestations of evil and of man's inhumanity to man. Can you see that? No, humans, well, whatever, you know what I mean. 
and the church actually bursts into life. It was a long time ago now, 30 years ago, but I still remember the images on television of the people who fled Rwanda during that massacre when many hundreds of thousands of people were killed. And these, believe, these Christian people had fled for their lives. They struggled through all sorts of disasters and chaos and fears and worries. They got over a river and got into the land of Tanzania. Now, you think if you'd done all that, you'd be sitting down looking for a cup of tea. Do you know what they did? Remember the television program? They came together and had a seven of praise and thanksgiving. And that has always been the sign of the church, blessed of God, even in the midst of judgments and disasters. Because they do, and we need to know that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And we're seeing, and usually when these verses are read at Christmas, we then jump on to verse 6, and we're going to do that, although we're not going to miss out completely the other verses. We're going to do that. For to us, a child is born. Now, we've already seen, of course, the child image is important, Isaiah. Isaiah is to have a child. The child's name is going to speak of the things that are going to come. Um, earlier on, before this, uh, back in chapter 7, the well-known verses that are quoted again at Christmas, and, and for the latter part of, ch of, of chapter 7, where the king is under pressure and is wondering what's going to happen and all the rest of it. And we read in verse 13, Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him, or he will be called, or it will be called, Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The promise that in the midst of seeming disasters, Emmanuel will be born. That is promise to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I certainly, Elizabeth, I would be fair to say, uh, as we delight in the gift of a grandchild, and I was getting a wee cuddle on Friday night, holding her, you, you see life in the beginning of, of life, and our wee eyes looking round, and see, hopefully beginning to recognize, who's that mutt looking away? <laughs> but you also think, what kind of world, at least I do, what kind of world is that we were going to grow up into? And you could be filled, filled with genuine concern. A child seems so fragile. A baby seems so weak. It wouldn't seem to be much to be able to blow them away. The dreams and the hopes and the aspirations, and some of us sitting here this morning can speak of that. The dreams and the hopes and the aspirations of children, like the mist and the dew in the morning, disappear. And yet we have a God, the glorious majesty of heaven, who entered into this world as what? As a child. Child in the manger. Infant of Mary, the God who comes into that place of frailty, of vulnerability, 
of dependence, who could be held in her arms, the one who strides through and upholds all things by his mighty word and strides through the universe. This is our God, as the hymn writer puts it. And notice that this child, this son, is going to have a mighty position. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At the men's Bible study on Thursday night, Colin, one of our elders, we were just reflecting on the challenges of the times, and Colin very wisely was again reminding us that one of the things that these past months, this past 18 months, we're now going to go into a third year of COVID and pandemic, that one of the main things that this surely should be telling humanity and telling us and telling our nation is that we are not the king of the castle, that we are not the source and center of all that is and the fount of all knowledge, that before a little virus, even the best of our scientists are left thinking, flip, we better go careful here and lock things down a bit, at least down south, lock things down a bit again. Before nothing, in many ways, how pompous humanity is and how fragile and febrile we really are. Where is the source of all wisdom? Where is the source of all hope? Where is the source of all true knowledge and all true authority? It lies in this child, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In him is the wonderful counsel of God. In him, mighty God is revealed. In him, he invites us back into relationship with our creator, Father. And in him is the promise of the Prince of Peace. And how foolish is the world, how foolish are our leaders, how foolish is our society if we count him as not. For those who do so will nonetheless, at the end of time, bow the knee and acknowledge him as Lord and as God. And that really opens up to us the rest of these verses. The bits that we read, verse 7, of the greatness of a government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and beholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We can imagine that when the Germans laid waste, and sorry about that, or the Nazis, I don't think you're supposed to see the Germans anymore, the Nazis laid waste to climb back. Way back in 1941, they thought, well, that's it. That's another victory. That's another, you know, step on the road to destroying Britain and winning the war. I can imagine when they invaded Russia, they thought that was it. You know, various steps where they thought that was it. But thank God that wasn't it. They might have thought they had victory, but actually they were simply digging themselves in for a deeper and more disastrous defeat, and that's the story of history, and of those who do such things. And those who walked away from the crucified Christ that Good Friday, who under their authority had had him nailed to the tree, I'm sure that night they probably had a good sleep. They thought they had got rid of him. 
they thought they had dealt an answer to this false prophet, that they had won a victory and there would be peace and they'd be back in control rather than have the people all stirred up by this man who taught as one with authority. I'm sure they thought that. But was that the end of the story? Was it? No. That was only the beginning. And for 2,000 years and for time to go, the truth of these final verses is being worked out. It may not always appear like that. It may not always seem like that within our own lives or within the life of our times or the life of the world. But King Jesus reigns on David's greater throne, establishing, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In him is the government and the peace and the days are coming as they have been in the past when eyes are open to recognize that the only true source of order and harmony and reconciliation and hope for the future is found in him, the child who's born for us. And the bit we definitely miss out at Christmas for understandable reasons you have enlarged the nation, increased their joy, they rejoice before you. Verse 3, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. That promise will be truly fulfilled in Jesus comes again. Just as we close, turn to chapter 11 of Isaiah. A different metaphor here, no longer a child, but a shoot will come up, we're told, in Isaiah 11 verse 1, from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And again, all the analogies, remember Jesus the vine and all the rest of it, bear these things in mind. The spirit of the Lord will rest in him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearing together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And when you go home, read that latter part of the book of Revelation with the one riding on the horse with the sash and the name Righteous One. See all the analogies? That hope, that promise, that you society, that you heaven, that you earth, that's the promise that's found in that little bundle of flesh, 
born of Mary. That's a promise that's fulfilled in the one who comes in weakness and fragility into a needy and broken and sad and fearful world. That's the one who enters into the midst even this Sunday morning amidst all the concerns that we may have in our hearts and all the uncertainties of what's going on in the world round about us, amongst all the debating and the struggles of the leaders of the nations, as often generally they try to deal with insurmountable problems. Just look at this whole crisis of the refugees fleeing over the channel and all the rest of it. In the midst of all of that, Jesus is building his church and preparing a people for that day when the promise and the vision becomes a reality and a sure and certain hope. Do not be afraid, the angel said, little, no wonder, for I bring you glad tidings. The kids would have a clue what that meant. Glad tidings of great joy for today in the city of David. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Let's pray together. We are humbled by your word. We are given assurance and comfort in the midst of our concerns, our fears. We can see the light dawning. And we long for the day when the Son of Righteousness will appear in all His, His glorious brilliance and might. But just as surely as this morning, as I was sitting at my desk, opened the curtains because it was snowy and it was dark, and slowly but surely the darkness turned to a lighter shade of darkness, a gloom that was dispersed by the rosy color of the rising sun in the clouds. And the dawn of a new day. So we thank you, O oh God, for the dawn and the light that your word, Jesus Christ, has shone into our hearts. And so fill us afresh with your spirit and enable us in this day and in this generation to be servants of the light of life, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together our final hymn. It's one to the tune of, well, the Cornetto. You'll know the tune when you hear it. Down from his glory, ever-living story, my God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. And we'll stand to sing. Let's say the words of the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.
Jesus.